with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Galatians. Galatians 1, 10 through 2, 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the pew back in front of you or the seat back. And Galatians 1, 10 starts on uh, page 1,154, page 1154. So Galatians 1, 10 to 2, 10, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Uh, not out of respect for the one who reads, but out of reverence for the one who speaks to us now by his word. This is Galatians 1, 10 through 2, 10, and I'm reading from the ESV. This is God's word. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers." But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches that are of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Well, this ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. 
Father, may the words of my mouth now and the meditations of all our hearts together be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This we ask, knowing that you hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, maybe continuing a theme, a few days ago, Mariana was out at a pottery class, and it was Dad and the girls uh, at home tackling dinner time. Dads, as you well know, there's so many ways that can go, right? Nothing makes me appreciate Mama more than uh, holding down the fort uh, when it's dinner time. Apparently, when it comes to green beans and Piper, uh, it's a standoff of epic proportions. Uh, Piper against the world, or at least against green beans. Uh, I mean, it's really something else. She is so stubborn. Uh, it reminds me of me when I was a kid. Like I told the kids, sometimes standing your ground is a small price to pay. So I was hand-feeding Piper like five green beans. Just five green beans. That's all it takes. Then you can go play. And I say, hey, Piper, did you eat that green bean? Open your mouth. Let me see. And she'd have, she had a twinkle in her eye. She was in a great mood. <laughs> Too good, in fact. And she'd open her mouth, ah, and half-chewed green bean, right? And over and over it went. More giggles, more mouthfuls of half-chewed green beans. It was impressive, really, how long she could just mangle them without swallowing them. It's like, please, if there's a medal for something like that, you've earned it. Just eat your green beans. Very stubborn, uh, very cute, but very stubborn. If Piper could talk even more than she already does now, she would probably tell you, stand your ground, people. Don't swallow those green beans. Uh, it's, it's the stubbornness and the tenacity of it all that I'm taking a lesson from. I'm taking an important, valuable lesson from it. Piper and the Green Bean Showdown uh, can teach us something. It can teach us something. What I want you to take away from today's sermon and from Paul's grace showdown that we're going to see today, I, w- I want to encourage you with this. I want to urge you really to be as stubborn about grace as Piper is about green beans. Be as stubborn about grace as Paul is about grace in this passage. You see, so often Christians, we're told we have to swallow grace Uh, Just swallow the good news of grace and get on to bigger and better things. Just move on. Uh, Get past grace and get on to grace and this or that as if grace wasn't enough. And I want you to hold on to grace with tenacity and with joy. And if you have any tips for toddlers and eating green beans, let me know after the sermon. Uh, But as we get into Galatians 1, 10 through 2, 10, I think what we really see come, uh, come forward in this passage or in Paul's argument is this central point, this instructive point about being absolutely stubborn about grace, being stubborn about grace. I want you to be stubborn about grace. I I don't usually make a a go do this, uh, the main point of the sermon, because I think it's marinating in the gospel that leads us to go and do anything. But be stubborn about grace, I think, is worth breaking the rule over. Uh, Grace must be maintained, or we might as well phone it in and all go home. Go get ready for the Super Bowl, go take a nap, go do anything else really other than being here. If grace is not the heartbeat of this place, of our faith, of our relationship with God, then it's not worth being here for. Uh, Maybe you're here and you're thankful to hear that and it's a hopeful thing to think about because you're wondering with your track record, maybe over the last little while, maybe over the last week, maybe over this morning, you're wondering if grace is really enough. Is grace really enough? I'm sure many of us think about that, right? Is the other shoe going to drop? Surely there's something else you got to do to get in good with God. And to that, Paul will say, and I will say over and over, grace, grace, grace. So you have to be stubborn about grace. 
That's the big idea I want to press home uh, today and over the next week or two. As I got into this passage, I realized it's just a lot to try and cover in one sermon. I had a pastor who used to say, discretion is the better part of valor. So I'm going to take this, instead of you know, looking at it like a fire hose hitting us with it all, uh, we'll take it a little bit at a time. We have to be stubborn about grace. And the big reason I want you to see this morning is this. It's God gave the message of grace. God gave a message. The message is grace. And we have to be stubborn about holding the line on grace. And we're going to consider four truths this morning uh, about this message of grace that God gave Paul and that God gives us as we begin working through Paul's remarks. Uh, these opening remarks, really, his, his opening argument where he's defending his ministry. But we see four things, four truths about the message of grace. Uh, God's approval matters the most. That's the first truth. God's approval matters the most. Secondly, God's message doesn't need man's approval. Thirdly, God's grace rescues the worst of us. And finally, God's grace is for the world. God's grace is for the world. So first truth, God's approval matters the most. Uh, here in Paul's opening remarks, this first main section of Galatians, uh, he's defending his call as an apostle. Uh, it occurs to me that this all might seem a little removed from us. I, I very much doubt this morning that many of us are seriously questioning Paul's call as an apostle, uh, but I don't want us to tune this out. I think there are many important practical things we learn uh, from his defense. It'll help us understand how God calling Paul fulfills this ancient plan uh, to bring grace uh, to you and me. Look with me at Galatians 1.10. Galatians 1.10. It says, Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Depending on your translation at this point, uh, you might find the word persuade here. Uh, the King James and the New King James say, Am I now seeking to persuade man or God? But approval is what's really in view here. Approval. Seeking the approval of man or seeking the approval of God, courting the favor of God. It's this denial of what his detractors are accusing him of. The questions themselves are the answers. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Of, of God, of course. That's what he's saying. Am I trying to please man? No, of course not. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul used to care about what people thought. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, after all, and the, the chief persecutor of the church. I mean, the logic of it all is pretty funny. Paul was at the top of his game. People loved and respected Paul, the accomplished Pharisee. Do you think this is what I would be making of my life if I still gave a rip about what people thought of me? If I still sought to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That would be a pretty dumb move, wouldn't it? Machen, in his notes on Galatians, points out that Paul may also have been accused of preaching grace to the Gentiles when he's over here in Galatia, and then preaching grace and the Mosaic law and circumcision when he was uh, in and among the Jewish people. Grace plus the physical right that uh, marked people's inclusion into God's old covenant people, national Israel. After all, in Galatians 5.11, which we'll get to eventually, he says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So that may be also behind what Paul is saying here. And maybe it's not completely out of the question that someone would raise this about Paul's ministry. Unlike the case with Titus that we'll look at later, um, 
After all, Timothy is a half-Jew, and Paul consents to his circumcision in Acts 16. Paul also talks about how he can be all things to all people. He says, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 1 Corinthians 9.20. So Machen, I think, is helpful. He clarifies Paul's approach. He's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Not at all. He's picking his battles wisely. Machen says, where no principle but merely his own conscience was involved or his own convenience, Paul could be the most concessive of men. Such concessiveness may well have been misunderstood or willfully misrepresented by his Judaizing opponents, by these people preaching uh, grace and the law for justification. So Paul's setting the record straight in this letter. God gave the message of grace, and he's stubborn about this grace. It's the message God gave him, after all. He's clarifying his apostolic authority and his message. But remember, it's to the end of preserving the gospel, not so much defending himself. Uh, his message most certainly does not include anything uh, that's added to God's grace, so he defends it. But it's God's approval that matters, ultimately, to Paul. And there's probably something for us to learn here from Paul's example. When we take a stand for the gospel, Paul really isn't concerned with what people think. That's not his concern. It doesn't seem to be people's low opinion of Paul that has him all riled up. It's people's uh, messing up the message of grace that has Paul riled up. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 4, 3-4. Paul says, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Right? So just because I don't know anything that I've done doesn't mean I haven't done anything. He says, It is the Lord who judges me. It's a very small thing to Paul that anybody else should judge him. He knows that the Lord will judge him. John Brown, I think, puts this well, and I think it applies to more than just ministers. It applies to all of us. He says, it is a happy circumstance if a Christian minister, or let's just say if any Christian, uh, it is a happy circumstance if a Christian, when slanderously reported of, can fearlessly appeal to the tenor of his life and leave the decision with those who know him best. So don't worry too much about what people say about you. Unless you need to be stubborn about grace, then go to town on that. I think that's the lesson we learn here. Go down swinging about defending grace, but it's God's favor that matters most. So that's the first truth. God's favor matters the most. And the second truth we see is really the other side of the same coin. And it's this. God's message doesn't need man's approval. His message doesn't need man's approval. Uh, we need to be stubborn about grace because God gave the message of grace. And the message doesn't need man's approval. But look with me at verses 11 through 12. Verses 11 through 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's been noted here that the verb uh, translated receive is sort of this technical term for passing on an oral tradition. Think of the Old Testament and how the Jewish people passed down the traditions given to them by God from generation to generation. And then, nor was I taught it, really refers to academic instruction. So he's saying, it wasn't that I received the oral tradition, it wasn't that I learned this in school, so to speak. 
Uh, Paul, of course, knew a thing or two about Christianity, or at least he knew enough to want to hunt down Christians and destroy the church. Uh, I read the account last week, but remember, Paul was on his way to imprison and kill Christians in Damascus when he was absolutely bowled over and knocked off his horse by grace and the glory of Jesus. So no human instructor made Paul an apostle. No human instructor made Paul a believer. No, it was, it was all the schooling he needed to see Jesus appearing to him in this vision uh, and knocking him off his horse and sending his entire life on a different direction. That's what convinced him that Christ was indeed the Son of God and the Savior of the world. It was in this moment that he knew Jesus was who he said he was. God who became man to bring sinful man back to God by his redeeming sacrifice and resurrection. And so Paul follows the summons to be Christ's apostle, appointed to preach this message to the Gentiles, to the nations. In fact, I think it might be because of all this that Paul gives us one of the more unique and beautiful descriptions of the gospel. Uh, as an aside, uh, over in 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6, through 6, he calls the good news, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the message that made Paul an apostle. It was not by man nor through man, but by God. Well, look with me now at the end of verse 16 and following. What did Paul do when he was given this message of grace? Uh, Notice he doesn't immediately go and compare notes and run things by the apostles. He does go and see, um, he, he does go and receive uh, some instruction when the scales, you know, fall from his eyes after being blind, but he doesn't go and, and really sit under the feet of the apostles and learn their doctrine. No, look at what it says in verse 16 and following. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who, are, who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now skipping down, uh, look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Let's just read some verses from that section, because it rounds out this point that God's mission, his message, doesn't need man's approval. So verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, so quite a bit of time, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now jump to verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, so to the nations and to the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, Uh, When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they uh, to the Jews, to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, so that getting the timeline of all of that is really 
uh, tricky. And probably no amount of caffeine on a Sunday morning would make it very interesting. Um, so I'm going to leave you to look at your study Bibles, look at the maps in the back of your Bibles, and work that out. Because it's probably less helpful to work out the exact timeline and which visit was what and when than it is to understand the reason that Paul goes to consult with the apostles after initially going to Arabia. And who knows what he was doing in Arabia? Luther says, well, what else would he be doing? He was preaching, of course. We don't know what he was doing in Arabia. But why did Paul initially go to Arabia and then after uh, a short time in, in Jerusalem go off preaching and only 14 years later return to Jerusalem? I think uh, Machen gets at it really well, focusing on Galatians 2.2. He says Paul finally makes this uh, major trip uh, to the apostles after 14 years away and Paul says, right, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, uh, Machen is right when he says Paul was going to continue preaching this message of grace no matter what they said. No matter what they said. It doesn't matter what the original apostles or any other man said. That's the message Paul was going to preach. So why does he go and consult with them? Well, here's the problem, as Machen notes. He says, if the Gentile converts through the propaganda of the Judaizers, the false teachers, really came to believe that the original apostles were opposed to Paul then a serious situation obviously would result. Those original apostles were really apostles. So long as the Gentiles were allowed to think that these apostles were hostile to Paul, uh, a serious contradiction seemed to be introduced into the apostolic witness. So Paul goes and he consults with them uh, to remove any doubt that there is harmony, that there's unity about the message of the gospel. Am I preaching the same gospel or not? All that notwithstanding, as Paul kind of alludes to, Whatever they were doesn't matter to me. God shows no partiality. Those who seem to be pillars, I mean, he's, he can sense Paul wrestling here. Um, he says in verses 11 and 12, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So the message of grace doesn't need man's approval. He says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, why should you care about any of that? Yeah, what's the point, preacher, right? That's a question you should always ask on Sunday morning. I think we should have the same outlook as Paul did uh, when it comes to God's message not needing man's approval. Of course, we didn't receive the gospel in this uh, glorious uh, direct revelation from Jesus, uh, but we always go back to the word of God and we stand on it alone. Uh, teachers are a good thing. Pastors are given by God. Elders called to instruct and to teach. But at the end of the day, uh, both for me and for you, we stand on the Word of God. And that's all the approval the Gospel needs. Uh, our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession, says it well in chapter 1. It says, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits, what this guy or that guy might say to you, are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other by the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. At the end of the day, we stand on the truth. We stand on the truth of God's Word, the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. So we've seen now these two truths um, about being stubborn for grace, this message of grace God's given. First, God's approval matters most. Second, God's message doesn't need man's approval. Uh, third truth, third truth. God's grace rescues the worst of us. Picking up in verse 11, go back there with me. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For you have heard of my former life of Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. There was no one, perhaps, more unconvinced by the gospel, nor anyone more opposed to the gospel than was Paul. Does that describe any of you here this morning? Maybe that's who you once were. Maybe that's who you are. Uh, there are two kinds of testimonies, really. People, whose God, people who God's grace keeps from becoming the worst they could be, and people who are well on the path to becoming the worst they can be who God rescues by His grace. Both are amazing testimonies to God's grace, but some of us here today maybe fall into that second category. God rips you out of the path you were headed on, becoming the worst you could be. Paul didn't just mildly dislike the church. He tried to destroy the church. In fact, as we'll consider more next week, here's what people were saying about Paul. The Christians in and around Judea, they didn't know him in person yet. They didn't know who this guy was that they heard was preaching. But they said, uh, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Isn't it amazing what grace can do? One of my earliest memories is being in a parade in Wichita, Kansas, Valley Center, actually. Uh, my grandpa was pulling me and my sister in a little trailer uh, behind his motorcycle, and we got to throw candy to people. Uh, I remember being reminded, Dan or Daniel, don't throw candy at people, throw candy to people. Uh, but man, that was fun, just throwing candy to anyone and everyone winding up in the parade, right? That's grace. That's grace, too. Grace is a party. It's the grace parade. Grace rolls down the street, and it sees people lining up on both sides with sordid pasts and half-hearted obedience and faltering faith. And what does grace do? It just starts throwing candy to anyone and everyone who comes with an outstretched empty hand to receive it by faith. Empty hands, and grace fills them up. That's what the grace parade does for even the worst of sinners. And it tends to make the straight-laced kid waiting at the end of the block who thinks he's earned the candy uh, a bit mad. And maybe some of us need to look and see if we're that kind of kid. And need to, we need to check our own self-righteousness and see that it's only because of the grace parade that any of us have been made right with God. We need to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 20, 1 to 16. Let me tell you the story that Jesus shared. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Israel was often called a vineyard. And after agreeing with the, labor, with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, and they thought they would receive more, uh, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master. And they said, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat? 
But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to me or with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my grace? That's the point here. It's a parable about Gentiles like us, the nations, and the 11th hour, people so far away and so far removed, being brought in by the gospel to the vineyard, to God's people, by God's sheer surprising grace. And God gave the message of grace that can rescue the worst of us to one of the worst of us, to the most convinced opponent of the gospel, the most guilty sinner, and he turns him into a missionary of God's grace to bring people like you and me into the vineyard. That's amazing. It's what makes grace so amazing. It's what makes it the sweetest sound. Paul might say, if it can save a wretch like me, it can save anyone. I was blind with fury against the church and against Christ. I was blind, but now I see. That's what grace can do. So God's approval matters the most. Uh, God's message doesn't need man's approval. Uh, God's grace rescues the worst of us. And then fourth and final truth here, and this is really amazing. God's grace is for the whole world. His grace is for the whole world. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. It's an incomplete sentence, but it's worth pausing and thinking about. Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So God's conversion of Paul coincided with God's calling Paul as his messenger of grace to the world to the non-Jewish world, his, his messenger of grace to the Gentiles. This is the ancient promise coming true. God called Abraham and set him apart, telling him not only that a great nation would come from Abraham, but all the world would be blessed. Genesis 12, 2-3, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. John Fesco, a seminary professor of mine, he writes the following in his commentary on Galatians. Highly recommend it. Very easy to read, very accessible. He says, Remember, Paul was set apart from birth to preach the Gentiles to anyone who was not a Jew, which echoes Jeremiah's call to be a prophet to the nations. In fact, the Greek word translated Gentiles could accurately be rendered nations. This is important information as it immediately establishes the far-reaching purpose of the gospel. The gospel is not parochial, limited to one region, or something restricted to Israel and the Jewish people, or to interested parties. Rather, the gospel has an international outlook. Many see Isaiah 49, which we heard read this morning in the background here too. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Speaking of the call of Isaiah, but ultimately about Jesus, it sets the context of Paul's ministry really well too. Isaiah 49, 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God gave the message of grace for the world. Jesus didn't just come to save the Jewish people from their sins. He came to save the world from their sin. And the very thing that Jesus was sent to do, that this gospel was sent to do, grace for the world, it was being distorted by the false message being preached by the false teachers in Galatia. They were saying, in essence, you have to become Jewish to come to Jesus. But the gospel was never ultimately about one nation. It was about all the nations. It's God's message of grace to the world. 
the time of God's old covenant people was preparing for this global harvest of the gospel. Galatians 3, 23 and following. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul will explain this in much more detail, but just know this. Grace is as much for Warrington, Virginia, as it is for Jerusalem. God gave the message of grace in Jesus for the whole world. And that message is still going out into the world. The message of grace is still going out into all the world, and it's going to go out through people like you. How will they hear if someone does not come and preach? As I said in an an email earlier this week, uh, I pray that some of you would not be here in three to five years. And I thought when I said that, you know, people are thinking, is it I? It's nothing like that. I'm not praying for anyone by name. Not yet anyway. Um, But I pray that some of you would not be here in three to five years because you're somewhere else fulfilling the Great Commission. Because you've gone somewhere to take the message of grace to the world that still needs to hear it. No one is too settled for God to uproot and send. I shared the story, but I'll share it again. Uh, My dad was uh, intending to be a pastor in a rural town in Kansas. Uh, He had a pastor tell him, actually, God is a logical God. And so God would not uproot a guy with a family and send him to the mission field. I don't know what that pastor was thinking. Um, That's really bad advice. Uh, So dad was going to be a pastor in Kansas, he thought. uh, But then in Bible college, a missionary to Mexico, as they tend to do, uh, roped him in and took him on a missions trip to Sinaloa, Mexico. And not too long after that, uh, we pack up the blue Ford Econoline van with a blue carpet interior, not quite shag carpet, but very groovy, I thought as a kid. And we towed a small white trailer behind the van with everything we owned uh, to the place our family would take the message of grace that God has sent to the whole world to Mexico. Uh, My parents still serve there decades later. Uh, Paul did not intend for this to be on his resume. He planned to be a rabbi, probably spend his days pouring over Torah, sitting at the gate, of course, knocking off as many Christians as he could along the way. And then he gets sent away from his respectable job and his prominent position to get beaten and stoned half to death and thrown into prison multiple times. And he counted it all joy because he's seeing the message of grace spread like wildfire to the nations. Grace will do that to you. And there are still people who have never heard that message of grace. People who God has called to belong to Christ. People who God has called to be Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So, I leave you with this question. Who's going to take them the message of this grace that's given for the whole world? Let's pray together about that. Please pray with me. Father, would you give us confidence in your approval and free us from the need of human approval? Make us stubborn about preserving and proclaiming the message of grace that saves the worst of sinners, the message of grace you've given for the whole world to be saved. May we praise you for the great grace we've received. And Lord, I pray now for those you are calling, not just to send, but to go, that you would open our hearts to whatever 
and wherever you're leading us to take the grace parade. What a thrill that will be. What glory that will bring you as we live stubborn about grace here in Warrington and to the ends of the earth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.